0: I like that, you know, whether you're in journalism or in marketing, that we get feedback much more quickly. We can adapt and adjust and correct, you know, and learn from that much more quickly, which I think is a huge asset.
1: As journalists take on more responsibilities like social media and promotion, the lines between editorial and marketing continue to blur. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, provided you're upfront about what you're trying to do. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Melanie Diesel has been on a podcast a few times. She's a brand storytelling consultant and the founder of Story Fuel, which helps teach marketers how to think like journalists. Today, Melanie joins us to talk about her new book, Content Fuel Framework, which gives content producers a way to systemize their creativity. Welcome back to the podcast, Melanie.
0: Thanks for having me back. It's been it, a while.
1: It, yeah, it's been a while. You've had a kid since we last spoke.
0: <laughs> I was um, a little busy.
1: Andrew wrote this book, but, uh, no. before Before we get into the discussion about the book, I want to ask you sort of a waggish question. Where do you stand on this debate about the word content? A lot of journalists kind of bristle at it. We're creating news, we're writing stories, we're doing video, whatever. What are your thoughts?
0: I understand. It's hard for me to remember how that that used to feel when I was, you know, just on the journalism side, not so much on the marketing side, but I get it. I mean, I can see how the word content might sort of be commoditizing the wonderful work that we do as journalists. So I can understand being bothered by that. What I do think though is that most people who use it, it's a matter of convenience that journalists used to create written content for the most part, and now there are so many ways of delivering content that to just say an article is no longer sufficient. So I think it's linguistically it's a convenient catch all, right? It means any of the stuff we're creating to tell stories, I get that. I think it's useful, but I can also see feeling like it kind of is commoditizing our work. So I see both sides, I guess.
1: Yeah, I feel like they're the same people who uh, get into lengthy arguments about whether or not to use the Oxford comma.
0: But you know what's always bothered me (laughs) about the Oxford comma debate is like the Associated Press says, the AP style book says, if it's needed for clarity, use it, right? That is AP style. So we're all in the same camp here. All this like grammatical, you know, weird sentences that have us accidentally eating grandma or like that your parents are Hitler and Stalin, like all these joking, you know, lacking Oxford comma sentences, they don't apply.
1: Yeah, I agree. I just think it's, I think there's there must be some sort of obsessive nature about journalists where they kind of fixate on on one aspect and they want to make it something bigger than it actually is. And it it just, to me, it always seems like a distraction. You know, it's like, just shut up. It doesn't really matter. I mean, okay, yes, grammar matters. (laughs) Yes, I understand that. But let's just move on. Moving on with the conversation, you, you talked about content, you know, written content and how... Journalists these days produce a lot of different content. And I see that sometimes as a challenge of, you know, maybe you're a good writer, maybe you're a good interviewer or whatever, but we're also supposed to, you know, push out our content and market it and mm-hmm. and you know, get try to, you know, get people to read it. So what are your thoughts on that?
0: I mean, it's definitely tough. I miss the days when we could just sort of like write a story, submit it, and then move on to the next one. Like those were the golden years. We didn't even know it. We didn't know how lucky we were, right? That that was the end of the assignment. And now I've heard some upsetting things from journalists who, you know, come from that time period and are now being incentivized based on how many Twitter followers they have and I mean that's a whole different ball game that's not what most of us were trained to do. So I think it's definitely stressful. I can see feeling really overwhelmed by how much our jobs have changed and how much is now our responsibility like we're responsible for you know, what the circulation team used to be responsible for, you know, and in some cases are responsible what the marketing team used to be responsible for. It's a, it's a lot. But I do think that what's what I like about it is that it's given us a chance to have a deeper relationship with our viewers. In the print days, it was like, you know, whoever you ran into at the diner telling you what they thought about your story, you know, and, and that's where you had to face those conversations. And that was really your only chance to see sometimes what difference you were making. And I, I like that you know, whether you're in journalism or in marketing that we get feedback much more quickly, we can adapt and adjust and correct, you know, and learn from that much more quickly, which I think is a huge asset.
1: I agree. I think one of the great things about digital journalism is it gives you this opportunity to have this conversation with your your audience. And actually, you know, a lot of the success that you get in this realm is, you know, establishing that relationship so that you're not just, you know, we're not all broadcasters anymore. We're not just on the on top of the mountain sort of delivering our message. We're You know, we're listening to people, finding out what news they really kind of need, but it's still kind of problematic sometimes, you know, not having those skill sets. Maybe this is a good transition to, to, to you talking about your book. One of the aspects of it that you kind of talk about is, you know, you're helping creative people to sort of market their content or systemize their creativity. How do you do that?
0: So, I mean, one of the things that I think a superpower most journalists have that they don't even realize is this ability to always find a story. Right. I mean, you never just don't put the paper out or don't update the website because you couldn't think of anything that is a completely foreign concept. And I think for a lot of other adjacent disciplines, you know, if you're in communications, PR, marketing, you know, you're an entrepreneur or trying to build your personal brand, that comes a lot less naturally. You know, there is a, a tremendous amount of, I don't know, writer's block, creator's block, some version of what am I posting today? What am I talking about today? And so the book is really trying to pull out of my brain and, you know, out of my background as a journalist, how do we do that? How do we consistently find new ways to tell stories? How do we consistently find new angles on the same stories? You know, say something different. How do, how do we even do that, you know, for all eternity? And so it walks through a system of focuses, you know, what are we talking about? What's the story about? And then, formats? How do we bring that story to life? And so I think what you were just hitting on is really the explosion of formats that we've seen in the last, I don't know, 15, but especially the last like, you know, five years. I mean, now we're, and we've got newsrooms trying to figure out how to make it on TikTok. That's not a problem. We weren't doing vertical lip sync videos five years ago. (laughs) Like these are totally new storytelling formats that we're having to figure out how to think in these new ways. And so it may come less naturally, or maybe you're not as well versed in some of these other formats trying to figure out how do we line up the different focuses, you know, the different themes and lenses that we can tell our stories through and all these different ways that we have to bring the stories to life. And how do we kind of mix and match those combinations in novel ways?
1: And it's interesting, having done this podcast for about seven years, you sort of see these things come and go. You remember Periscope? Mm Mm-hmm. And everybody was kind of obsessed with Periscope for about a year. and it kind of disappeared. You mentioned TikTok, you know, at what point is it going to stick and be something really kind of useful and that everybody's going to know and master, or it's going to kind of go by the wayside because we've moved on to something else that's more fun.
0: What's interesting is, you know, the specific platforms, the specific application rather may change over time, right? Like Vine is gone. We're not doing six second square videos anymore. But that whole lesson did teach us about kind of micro content and creating short form video, which is sort of you know, brought back to life in TikTok and Byte and, you know, the fact that short form video is now possible on Instagram, on Twitter and other places. Same thing with Periscope. Maybe Periscope as a platform is not necessarily around anymore, but all these platforms are now offering live video as a format. You can do live video on Instagram, on YouTube, you know, Twitch is huge for gamers. So there's definitely sort of like lessons buried in some of these blips of platforms. You know, we're still learning how to tell stories different ways, even if that you know, that specific application doesn't stick around long.
1: Are you able to apply any of the lessons that you give in the book? Well, let me ask you this in two parts. One in the the writing of the book and other in the actual promotion of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's It's been a little bit of a challenge. So I, I, I wonder if, if journalists have this problem, too, especially if you're trying to sort of establish a personal brand. You know, you maybe you're trying to maintain a personal blog and all your social channels – our version of the cobbler's children's shoes, you know, where it's like, you, or like hairdressers maybe don't have the best hair, nail technicians, their their nails are not in great shape. You know, the chef is eating ramen at home kind of thing. It is a huge challenge to feel like I have to walk the walk and create all this amazing epic content and all these different forms to promote the book. As you know, self promotion is rarely a high paying business. So there's a lot of other things I've got to focus on with the business and, you know, the new baby. So it's been tough, but I, I am definitely trying to explore different ways to, you know, to promote the book, to talk about the book, but not just for the sake of promoting it, but to actually, you know, create interesting content around it. So. Just as an example, one of the things I've been exploring is would it be useful to have an infographic about the book that shares kind of like quick facts in a visual, easy to, easy to understand way? You know, how many pages? When does it come out? You know, those, those kinds of things just. Making quick facts digestible in a visual format. If something like that would be useful, maybe I'll create that. You know, I created a a printable sort of guide to the book that people can use to kind of follow along with it. That might be. So I'm just trying to really think about all the possible formats that are out there and and which ones make sense, you know, because I think the last thing any of us want is content for the sake of content. And I certainly don't want to be preaching that. So trying to limit it to what's actually useful for people.
1: I mean, the, the fact that you wrote a book, I mean, writing a book is kind of a big deal. I take it you feel like it's a big deal.
0: It certainly felt like it. You know, I we mentioned that I, I had a baby. I actually wrote the book while I was pregnant because a fellow mom said to me, as soon as that baby is here, you will never finish that book. You need to finish it before she gets here, like, or else, pretty much. So... um the entire time that I was on maternity leave, I was writing every single day. I mean, chapters, chapters, you know, thousands of words a day, just trying to get this book out of my soul as soon as I could. And so it was sort of a a huge process. And then I finished the book in July of 2019. And we spent the last few months going through edits and revisions. And it's certainly the biggest creative project I've ever worked on. I mean, I've worked on, you know, big interactive in-depth features that have taken two, three months to put together, but never something that's, you know, nearly a year in the making. It's draining, it's exciting, it's scary, it's it's everything.
1: <laughs> and this is where I get to shoehorn in the fact that I actually wrote a book at one point <laughs> about podcasting. But I, you know, I experienced a lot of the same sort of things. The challenge of it, the fear of it, the sense of accomplishment when it was over, the the whole editing process. And then you kind of get to the end of it and you have this thing that kind of show, this can apply to, you know, all types of content creation. If you've written a long four piece, form piece for a, you know, a magazine or a website or something, and you turn it in and it's now separate from you. And some people it's, you know, they just move on to something else. Other people, I mean, that's part of, they've got to, they've got to go out and they've got to promote it. They've got to go talk you know to other people about it and then still kind of be an active thing that they keep going.
0: You know that point when you're submitting a big story like that, like a, like you said, like a long-form magazine piece or anything you've been working on for substantial time, and there's that point between when you submit it or upload it or, or send it to the editor and when it's finally live in the world? You know, that gap, at least for for most of our projects, you know, even some of the bigger ones, it's not generally that long. You get some sort of feedback. The craziest thing about a book is like, I finished writing this book in July, And it's now, you know, we're talking here, it's about to be February and like, it's finally getting into people's hands and that gap of like, I spent all this time and I, I worked so hard and I hope that it's actually as useful and interesting and beneficial for the audience as, as I hoped it would be, but it takes a long time to get that feedback. And I think that's probably one of those journalism things that's left over in my soul is like, you want that feedback a little sooner. It's hard to wait.
1: Yeah, I think one of the reasons we we get into journalism is is the the immediacy of it. This this idea that it you know we're gonna have something in, in tomorrow's paper, or we're gonna be able to post something immediately online, and you know you get feedback from readers, you get feedback from people in your office, and and it feels kind of good. But yeah, that was my experience as well when I wrote my book. It was months and months in, of hard labor, and then and then nothing for a really long time. Outside of uh-huh. like, then you enter into the the editing process, which is a really strange. Protracted sort of surgery, but you know, and once it's kind of published, it, it almost seems like this sort of different, separate thing. And we're kind of talking about books in, in abstract, but let's let's talk a little bit about your book in specifics. So, what is it you're trying to tell people? What is it that you want to help them do?
0: I mean, one of the the big, hairy, audacious goal, like the big, giant dream goal, I guess, is I really want people to see creativity. And, you know, this ability to come up with, with ideas for stories to tell as a a renewable resource and something that's fully within their control and within their mind. Because I think. Unfortunately, so much of the conversations around creativity and, and coming up with ideas, coming up with stories, we're giving away our agency. You know, we're sort of like leaving it saying that it's a muse or it's luck or it's chance or some people are born with it. And I just, I think that's such garbage. I, I think everyone is creative. I think it's a hundred percent within your control. It's a learnable skill. And I think that the real challenge of it is that we don't have a shared language or a process that we use to come up with ideas. The example I always give is like, Michael, if if I asked you right now to come up with share five first names, go. Uh,
1: Well, Mike and Melanie, (laughs) that's the easy one. Uh, Mike and Melanie, Ruth, Mark, Steve. Yeah. Okay.
0: How did you come up with your list? Where'd you go? Obviously, we're right here. We're right right here.
1: Uh, That's a bit of a a cheat. I pulled those kind of out of of a hat. They just came out of nowhere.
0: So sometimes what happens is people will go to some sort of framework, right? Like they list, okay, here's the members of my family. Here's my siblings. Here's my coworkers that I can see in the room, right? Your brain knows that coming up with any name out of the ether is probably not the way to go. It's why you looked right at your screen. You have you and me, right?
1: I thought I was cheating.
0: (laughs) No, that's fine. That's, I mean, that's a framework. Your brain was like, give me something to hang on to, right? Especially if you're not, again, not from, from journalism or you didn't have the training that a lot of us do. When you're trying to come up with an idea for content, it's a bit like trying to grab at anything. You know, you don't have something to grab onto. There's no go-to list of like story frameworks. So that's really what I was trying to create is if you've got this list of here's 10 possible things you can focus on, people, history, data, et cetera. And then here's 10 plus ways you could bring those stories to life through writing, through live video, through video, audio, infographics, etc. Now you have something to hang on to, right? You can mix and match those combinations in different ways. And you're not just grasping at straws. Like you actually have a system, a process to come up with ideas that suit whatever event products, you know, message you're trying to share. And so hopefully that that makes it a lot easier for people and they're not going to have as much of that writer's block, creator's block. I'm not a creative person. I can't do this, you know, feeling. That's what I'm trying to get rid of.
1: And it's funny going back to me writing a book that kind of actually sort of changed my perspective about the creative aspect of being a journalist. Because, you know, when you're a journalist, you talked about this a little bit. You know, you know the paper's coming out on Friday. You know that you have an assignment that's due, you know, tomorrow, and you either go crazy and like obsess about it. It's almost a matter of faith that you like know that. Yeah, I don't know what the story is, but I think you know if I reach out to this person and this person, you know, I'll be able to write something up. This sort of understanding that you have have and confidence that you have the skills and experience that. You know, Once you place attention on it, you'll be able to produce whatever you need to do on a deadline because you've done that before. But for me, when I did the book, because it was such a new, different situation, there was a point where I felt I had a great degree of panic when I suddenly (laughs) realized that, oh, my God, I've never written a book before. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But I ended up falling back on a lot of the journalism skills I had, which was, you know, I've interviewed a bunch of people. Let's look at what they say. Let's see if we can construct this. And then breaking it down into into segments and sort of just coming up with a structure that I could function in. You know, now I'm, I'm back covering local news and I'm writing, you know, 10 different posts, some of them lengthy stories, some of them really short a day for a website and just waking up in the morning, having really kind of a vague idea of what I'm going to work on, but <laughs> the sort of faith that, you know, I'll find those 10 things. I know it's going to be there. And so now I kind of view creativity and I think maybe this is kind of what you were alluding to is, is sort of this river that you can kind of tap into. So really it comes down to the skills that you have. Part of it is focus. I think, you know, that you can kind of turn and access that. And then that allows you to, to do whatever you need to do. And at the end of the day, you're, you're going to make your assignments, You're going to write the things you need to write. And that doesn't mean you're not going to have trouble tracking down a source or whatever, but you know, this idea that somehow at the end of it, you're going to be able to, to come through.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think that pressure to have to create consistently, like you said, you know, the paper comes out every day or the magazines every week, you know, you, you have that recurring deadline that over time you just, you do grow faith in your ability to, to make it happen. And I think if you're not in an an environment regularly or often where you, you have to do that, it seems so terrifying, you know, for people who are, haven't had that, you know, that sort of upbringing, so to speak. There's something to be said for sort of, using that muscle regularly, you know? And I think that's yeah. that's really it, is that if, if you're doing it routinely, it's like anything. I mean, it can be taught, it can be practiced, it can be mastered in a way. I think the exciting part about it is there's always something new to say. There's always something new to create. To me, that's really exciting.
1: What did you learn about yourself in writing a book?
0: <laughs> the hardest part for me, I'll be honest, was writing the acknowledgements. And I know that, that maybe that sounds hokey, but it was just like, I was so incredibly grateful and acknowledging how many people played even a small role in my life, getting to the point where it was that I could write a book in my training, the various jobs, the mentors, the family support. I mean, that was a a particularly overwhelming part. Granted, I had a lot of hormones coursing through my body because I was very pregnant when I wrote it. So, you know, maybe revisiting it now won't be so bad. But that to me was, I mean, I think I've learned how blessed I am, what a wonderful tribe of people I have around me, you know, supporting, supporting this endeavor, which is is always wonderful. But I think the, the other thing that was really nice for me is, like I said, I've never taken on a creative project of this size. And so there's something really rewarding. I mean, being able to say I wrote a book, I'm an author, is wonderful. But I think there's something internally rewarding about being able to embark on a project of that size. I mean, writing, that many words that make sense in a row and it bring value to people. That was creatively very rewarding and did give me a boost. You know, I think a year and a half, two years ago, the idea of writing a book was this big scary thing, and now I can comfortably call this my first book and know that I could do it again if I if I wanted. You know, and I think there's a that's a big leap, even for me in my own creative abilities to know that something of that size is within my wheelhouse, and that's that's a really cool feeling.
1: It is, and I think you're gonna as You get sort of further away from the release, and you actually talk to people who have read the book and been affected by the book. I think that's that's going to sort of give you reinforcement in other ways. Yeah. And I had a very similar experience in in writing my book. It was less about. I certainly care that people got stuff out of it. Right. But it it was something more internal. The reward of it was something more internal. That it was just like, yeah, this. You know, I feel better about myself, and I know that I can. I can tackle something huge if I needed to.
0: Now, I'm not a runner at all, so I can't speak to this personally, but it sounds a lot like what I hear friends describe when they like run their first marathon or half marathon, where like, yes, it's cool. I'm glad I got a medal, but it was really about proving to myself that I could sort of do something of that size, you know, of that, something that difficult. And now it makes anything less than that seem less scary. So I think there's, there's something, there's something similar in those two uh, endeavors, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, I thought you were going to say that you got writer's high or something. something. Oh, I mean, maybe.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't experience that so much. I, I will readily admit that coming up with the concept for the book was easy. Actually getting it all down on paper in a way that made me happy was a lot more challenging. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't get into too much flow during that process, I'll be honest.
1: <laughs> so before we kind of wrap up here, I, I did want to talk about marketing. You know, that's primarily what we talked about the last couple of times you were on the podcast, You know, we don't always have people who are, you know, primarily focused on marketing on the podcast, and I like to sort of explore it. In a sense, we did—we talked a little bit about it and this idea that these journals have to sort of promote their their stuff. But what do you see as some of the trends recently, like over the last year or so? Keeping in mind you had a baby and you wrote a book, Uh, (laughs) going on going on in the marketing side of the business.
0: I mean, I think it's it's such a big question. There's so, so many things that are changing. I mean, I think in general, we've seen some trends over the last few years that have continued and these things make me happy. So one is I really like that we're seeing more and more brands understand the value of storytelling. I would say on average, advertising sucks a little bit less than it did a few years ago, right? Like I think brands are finally understanding that, you know, they need to be a little more transparent, you know, create more valuable content and stories for their audience and acknowledge that you can't just throw up a product photo and expect people to buy things anymore, that they need to act a little bit more like communicators. you know. And so that overall, in the many ways that comes to life, I think is is an overall good sign. I think we're seeing, in general, continued move toward multimedia, which is also wonderful. I think that same thing we've seen in our newsrooms, right? Something is rarely just text anymore or just video, right? It's got elements of everything. And I think What I like about that is we're making our stories more approachable and more relatable for different segments of audience. You know, we know, we know from an education standpoint, different people learn in different ways. Some are readers. Some like to listen. Some like to watch. Some like to do things. So the more ways we can present these different stories, I think the more approachable our content gets. I also think. I mean, I imagine like you, the term fake news gives me heartburn. I mean, I hate the term. I don't like what it's done to our industry. I think what it has done that is valuable is make all of us who are in the business of speaking to people or, you know, communicating with people aware of how high the bar is for earning our audience's trust right? Like it's, it's a lot harder to win over an audience now to beat that skepticism, to be trustworthy and credible. And I think that overall is doing good things for communications as a whole, that it's, it's making us more conscious. It's making us more aware of what reputable sources are. It's making us work a little bit harder to prove our worth, which while scary, I think will hopefully have better impact in the long run. You know, if we can weed out some of the less, if we can make people more literate, right, more media literate and more aware that there are bad actors out there and we hold ourselves accountable for proving that we are the good ones, I think overall communications will be better for it.
1: And we originally spoke, you were actually one of the people who brought in for the first time on the podcast discussions about native advertising. Yeah. Here we have content that is somehow involved with some sort of sponsor, some sort of product to what you were saying before, getting them to be storytellers, you know, that's part of the thing. But when you bring up fake news, all the sort of evolution that's going on in newsrooms is going on in the marketing side of the business as well. You know, people who are concerned about, you know, newsrooms that, you know, whether they're expressing opinion, you know, then they turn around and they see content on the same site that, you know, has some sort of product associated with it. So then it draws into question, what does this content mean? And I think, you know, as you sort of said, media literacy is, is vital at this point for all of us for people to understanding what we're doing, why we're doing it, that there's a side of our business that's actually helping to pay for your news that has some product or sponsor associated.
0: Yeah. Back when we had our our first conversation and definitely, you know, in the intervening years since, there have been questions about whether native advertising or, or sponsored content in general is sort of contributing to this reader skepticism and the distrust. And I can absolutely understand that fear, I think it's a valid fear. And I imagine I, I can't quite remember our exact conversation. Yeah. But I'm, sure, I'm sure I said something similar because I've felt similarly since then. There are bad actors in every industry, right? There's bad music, bad movies, bad food, right? There will always be bad branded content of that, I am sure. But the vast majority of us are working for a brand that wants to provide something of value. We're beholden to a publication that has standards that is concerned about protecting its reader trust. And this is the thing that I always remind people, brands spend money on content because they want people to know it came from them. So it is never, literally never in the best interest of a brand to in any way obscure or hide or, you know, be sneaky about their involvement, right? They want to be seen. That's why they're buying it in the first place. So, you know, really clear disclosure, I think goes a long way toward avoiding some of that potential fallout. And again, most of the studies we have do show that as long as it's clearly labeled and people know what they're getting into, we do actually trust content from brands so long as it's valuable to us in some way and within their area of authority. You know, I think about every food item that we buy in the world comes with recipes on the back and nobody is upset at the brands for trying to show us how to cook something because it's a food brand and they should be showing us how to cook something. You know, we read the manuals for our product. We read the blogs of our favorite products. People line up in droves to go to an Apple hosted event, you know, full of brand content. So long as it's something we want and need and it's squarely within the brand's area of authority you know they're not talking about something completely random i think brands can provide value through content just like anyone else it just it's a matter of finding those guardrails and staying within them
1: melanie thanks for coming on the podcast we've been talking to melanie diesel about her new book content fuel framework good luck with it and keep in touch
0: thank you thanks for letting me share my story
1: you've been listening to it's all journalism a weekly podcast about the people who make the news you can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.